Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Michelle Dickinson. And Michelle is a passionate potter who loves to spend time with her Jack Russell Terriers, Chloe and Trooper, and her rescue cat, Chance. She's been in the pharmaceutical industry for over 18 years. She's currently an associate director at Johnson & Johnson, a company she adores because it feels like her second family. Michelle's memoir offers a rare glimpse into a young girl's experience living with and loving her bipolar mother. After years of playing the role of child care Caregiver, she embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. She emerged with a strong desire to turn that challenge on its head and positively impact the mental health landscape. Michelle is out to raise awareness and compassion for those struggling with mental illness, along with those who care for them, so that more people get the treatment and help they need and deserve. She believes that together we can eradicate the mental health stigma once and for all. Determined to share her story of perseverance and triumph as well as what she's learned about dealing with mental illness in the workplace, Michelle launched what she hopes will be a public speaking career on Johnson & Johnson's TEDx stage. She would love nothing more than to touch people's lives with her story and insights in forums across the country. So, you know my definition of betrayal, the breaking of a spoken or unspoken rule. As a child, it's common to have a set of expectations or unspoken rules about what we think we'll receive from a parent. So what happens when those needs aren't met because the parent is unwilling or unable to meet those expectations. Today, we're talking with Michelle Dickinson, who grew up with a bipolar mother. What it created, what she experienced, and what it led to is so inspiring. Get ready. Here's Michelle. Okay, everybody, this is going to be a very interesting episode because you know how we talk about betrayal here, and it's from a family member, partner, friend. And sometimes the betrayal is just something about like what we thought we'd get and we didn't get or what we wanted, but didn't, we didn't receive that kind of stuff. So today we're talking with Michelle Dickinson, who's going to be sharing a story about a family betrayal. We're talking about her mom. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for joining us. So my definition of betrayal is it's the breaking of a spoken or unspoken rule. And the more we trusted and the more we depended on someone, the bigger the betrayal. And when you think of a child who's so completely dependent on their parent, um, well, of course, that's going to have a bigger impact than, let's say, a coworker taking credit for your idea. Still a betrayal, different different level of impact. So your betrayal is with your mom, and and that can leave a lot of a lot a lot in the wake of that betrayal. Let's dive into that a little bit. Tell us. Um, Tell us why we're talking about that. What's your story? Sure, sure. So I grew up uh, with a mother who had bipolar disorder and she had it from when I was a very young girl um, all throughout uh, my life until she passed away. And so um, I had the role uh, kind of like the silent responsibility of taking care of her. Um, for a lot of the years, even, you know, my younger, my, my childhood years, even into my adolescence. And even when I was out of the home, I still had a sense of responsibility for caring for her. Um, she had the typical moods from man mania, uh, very manic to a very deep, dark, depressed, like depression where she was just out of the game of life, like just sitting on the couch crying and just not well until ultimately she'd be hospitalized and have uh, severe treatments from like shock therapy to, you know, several weeks in a, in a mental hospital. So it was hard. So my responsibilities were, and it was my normal, 
were to look after her, make sure that all of her needs were being met and try to keep her as even um, keeled as possible. And I want to stop you there because give us a sense of how, like how, when you say you were responsible, when did you start feeling that responsibility? How old were you? Yeah, I was, I was definitely in uh, middle school. I would say like junior high. Um, my, when I was very little, my grandmother would come and take care of us, kind of stay with us. So it wasn't when I was really little, it was probably like in my little, as I got older and I had more of a sense of responsibility, it was probably junior high, maybe like what, what's that? 12, 13, 14 years of age. So yeah. And it wasn't like, it was like, you know, you will take care of her. It was you know, kitchen had to be cleaned, house needed to be cleaned, food needed to be made. Mom wasn't active for several weeks. She's sitting on the couch and not doing anything and hasn't left, um, hasn't gotten out of her pajamas. So it was expected. And my dad was the breadwinner. So he was always working. And so, you know, the little bit that I could prove my value was to show up and make a difference for my father and, you know, help with dinner and help with cleaning and giving my mom what she needed to be okay. And and did you have any, do you have any siblings or was it just you? Yeah. I had two cousins who lived with us for about 10 years. Uh, My mom had uh, taken them in um, because of family circumstances they had. Um, And so, but you know, we all kind of rallied around her. Uh, They, they were with us for, like I said, a period of time, but I do remember there being a lot of responsibility of just, you know, just, taking care of the house. And then, you know, what did she need? And our needs were always on the back burner. Like I, if I had a bad day at school or if there was an upset with a girlfriend, like that didn't matter. What mattered was like, does she have what she needs? So I quickly learned how to hide my own needs and put my own, um, whatever I needed on the shelf and really just focus on her. And, and I just want to, and I'm going to stop you here again, because first of all, I'm, uh, there are so many questions I have here. You're a, um, a, a young a tween teenage girl, which just on the best day is rough. You know, I, I have four kids, two girls, two boys, and those years are just brutal for girls and boys. So not having your mom, she's physically present, but not, um, right. emotionally present for you, that had to be really challenging. And w- your cousins were, what, what relationship and what role did, what relationship did you have with them and what role did they play as far as taking responsibility for this too? Yeah. They, too? Um, yeah. So they, they, I was raised to feel like they were my brother and sister and I looked up to them and I leaned on them and they, they equally felt the responsibility that I did and in, in that we do whatever we need to, to keep the peace and to take care of things. So things, so that the, you know, the workings of the house continue. And what did it, so what did it leave you with? Like, when did you, when did you get a sense that it wasn't, that wasn't going on in your friends' houses, let's say? Exactly. So, and and it it becomes your norm. So you don't know any different, right? That was my norm. That was the expectation of me. So it wasn't until like I would go to my girlfriend's house. I mean, I can remember it to this day, going and spending time with my girlfriend, Robin and her mother and witnessing a loving relationship and witnessing peacefulness in their home and witnessing, um, just a very different energy, something that I couldn't appreciate in my own home, just being able to be you and be, and be happy. Um, so I think I realized it there. And then, you know, 
back then this mental health stigma was even worse. So, you know, we concealed it. And I think, you know, probably Robin and maybe a couple of other girlfriends, I actually let in and told them what, what I was dealing with. But for the most part, was very protective and didn't want anyone to judge me. So I kept that very private. And, and tell me your dad's role in this. Yeah, my dad, my dad, you know, I can reflect now and, and realize my dad had a limited understanding of her mental illness. He worked really hard. His, I, I love his, his sense of responsibility. He worked, he provided, he took care of us. He took us on vacations. He did whatever my, whatever my mother's needs were, he was out to fulfill on, but he worked a lot. And so the expectation was we did whatever so that he could get his job done so that, you know, he could provide for us. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I reflect now, he would yell at her and say, snap out of it. And so unless you understand mental illness, you wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. So, but that was what he knew, um, I think would try to jolt her out of her depression. But, Mm. and so how did it, so you're saying it was your norm and, how did it impact you? Of course, so you hear you are doing things that maybe other kids your age weren't, didn't have the same responsibility or didn't feel the same responsibility to, to do, but how did it affect you beyond that? Oh, wow. Um, I would say more than anything, like my, my own voice, like I lost my voice. I lost my, um, courage to speak up and ask for what I wanted. I, I, I learned, I felt that I was insignificant and I didn't matter. Um, everybody else's needs were more important than my own. And that grew me into the woman that I am today, still struggling to find my voice and speak my truth and honor my own needs. Um, so I, that absolutely has always been a, the theme and the tapestry behind me, you know, uh, you know, making everybody else the priority before my own needs, mm. you know? And when did you, so then that's what, that's sort of like the subconscious program that's, that's running all the time. But when did you, when did you realize it? When did you start working on it? And what changes did you make? what did you start to do? Yeah. So I think one of the pivotal points for me was, um, you know, my mom, I had moved out of the house. So I, my, when I got married, I, literally got married to get out of my parents' house. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my therapist at the time said, you married the male version of your mother. I just want you to know that. Of course, mm-hmm. that marriage ended. But I remember um, I would go to her to talk about you know the failing marriage, but also talk about how to manage my mother. Because even though I wasn't living with my mother, she was still very manipulative. Mm-hmm. She would still control me and make me feel guilty for not spending every waking spare moment with her. And I had this one moment when I was driving home from her house after spending eight hours with her and crying my eyes out because she was so upset that I had to leave. Like it wasn't enough. Mm. And I remember feeling that, that sense of, uh, I'm, I'm letting her down, but yet I just spent the whole day with her, but yet I'm letting her down. So I would sit in my therapist's office and she would say to me, Michelle, you have got to distance yourself. You have got to create a healthy boundary. And, and if that means not picking up the phone or if that means not running down to see her, you got to take care of you. You are the most important thing. And for you to be riddled with guilt and be manipulated and be so upset, it's not healthy for you. Mm-hmm. So she kind of gave me permission to create that 
that boundary and that space and love myself and take care of myself when no one had ever done that for me. And, and it's so hard because here it is, it's your mom, you know, and, and you're thinking you're doing, you're doing this because it's your mom and you, you want her, you want her well, you, you're doing the best you can. And here's the betrayal piece too, because there's, as, as a child, you know, there is a set of expectations. It is that unspoken rule of your role as the mom is to teach me and take care of me. And my role is to kind of listen and, and, you know, and it was clearly that wasn't, that wasn't the case. And then there are all the emotions that go with it, that, that sense of rejection and abandonment and, and denial and, and just, you know, so many of these emotions, sadness, anger, rage, I mean, so many. And how did you, so how did you manage that? Yeah. I mean, just to touch on that real quick on the whole like caregiving thing, the thing mm-hmm. that I, and people say to me all the time, like, what do I do? I have a loved one who has a, who has something like this. I'm like, you have to take care of yourself because mm-hmm. it's so easy. It was so easy, especially for me to get lost in trying to do whatever I needed to do to please her, to make her happy. And that was just never going to happen to make her fully happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, so for me, it was the therapy that, you know, having a therapist give me permission to create that boundary. But then also I set off on a very long self-discovery road to really understand how my childhood and my relationship with my mother had shaped who I was mm-hmm. to try to break that down and recognize that I wasn't my past, that I had the, the power to create from this moment forward what I want for myself, um, and, and to claim it. So therapy, self-discovery, I did a lot of, uh, Tony Robbins work, landmark work, just constantly stayed in inquiry around my own thought processes and my own healing. And, um, and yeah. I want to dive into that a little bit deeper because there are so many people listening right now who say, Oh my gosh, that's me. I'm in this scenario. And every time I try to break free or set some boundaries, the guilt Yes. It's just overwhelming. I just I just don't know what to do with it. And the guilt is so painful. It's easier just to stay with what's familiar than break that pattern and set myself free. So yes. take us on the path uh, from the first thing you did and the next thing and the next yes. thing. And, and also how you felt yes. as you started trying these new things. Let me tell you, it wasn't without a lot of guilt. I, I, I will tell you, my therapist said, create a healthy boundary. Don't answer the phone every time she calls. Don't run to her every time she she asked you to run. And I knew by not doing that, I was going to piss her off. Mm-hmm. And I did. I did. I had to, I just had to deal with it. And I knew the first few times she was going to be mad at me and she was really angry with me. But I think um, as time went on and I started to realize the peace that I could gain from creating that boundary it became worth it for me to continue to do that. And it became a commitment of mine that when I chose to engage with her, I was fully with her. Mm-hmm. That was the dedicated time where I could give you my myself and my love for this period of time, whether it's one phone call or one visit, but it's not going to be a limitless access to tapping into Michelle and draining me of everything I had within me. And okay. So, so, just to, to sum that up, it's 
um, 100% being present in the space you're in. So when you're when you're with your mom, it was like, I am here, I'm fully present. And what that does, it, it's so powerful because then it's, it's truly the quality versus the quantity and you're, you know, you're, you're giving, you're so focused, you're so present and it does reduce the guilt. Yeah. Instead of being in one place and kind of, you know, you're thinking about being somewhere else. So, so that was a way to manage the guilt and to protect your time a little bit just in with doing that. What was the difference that you started to feel maybe physically, mentally, emotionally? just more balanced. I mean, I wasn't crying as much. I wasn't feeling, I mean, you got to remember, and I think people can relate to this. Every time I hung up the phone, I felt like crap because I could never fulfill on the expectation that was so, I could never reach the expectation of what she wanted. So it was less phone calls, more peace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that was giving me a sense of also confidence that I can speak up for myself and Mm -hmm. I can, care for myself. I mean, here's a girl who self-care wasn't, it wasn't something that I grew up learning. I was having to learn how to create boundaries and care for myself. And this was an act of caring for myself by doing that. And so- we look at it like it's selfish, but it's self-preservation. I want everybody listening to really picture almost like a ladder and you can see how one step just leads to the next and then the next and the next. So it sounds like the first step was claiming those boundaries and to manage the guilt, being fully and totally present. And this way, uh, you're giving the best that you can. You're tone, you're tamping down the guilt a little bit. You're strengthening your confidence because because you are setting some boundaries. And because of that confidence and feeling that you have a, a, a voice that started to come back, realizing that self care is something that you need. What what did that lead to? What was the next step? Yeah. So you know, you know more. Um, what. Well, I, I then got out of the bad marriage I was in. I mean, as mm-hmm. basic as it sounded, I think that needed, I needed the confidence to realize that I didn't have to tolerate what wasn't working for me. Um, it sounds, it might sound small, but you know, I was groomed to tolerate. We tolerate what we have to tolerate. There's no other option. So I found myself in a marriage where I was tolerating something that wasn't fulfilling me that wasn't, that wasn't honoring what I wanted. So it was the confidence to speak my truth and to step away from that. Okay. So, so look at how, you know, you're saying this is a small thing. This is a huge thing because when you picture a spiral, that spiral is either a negative spiral or a positive spiral. And without the awareness, without doing the work, without the understanding, here's the negative spiral of, um, just these set of beliefs that are formed that your voice doesn't matter, your needs don't matter, you don't matter. And then look what that leads to. That leads to uh, finding someone who is not that he was good for you. He was very familiar yeah. because this was, you know, what your mom did. So here it's very familiar, but that marriage is confirming my voice doesn't matter. I don't matter. So look at the negative spiral and, and here I'm doing this spiraling motion as if the listeners can see me, <laughs> but now think about what happens now, all of a sudden, here's the, here's the course correct. And here's where you say, you know what, mom, I love you. And this is the, the time frame I have with you. I'm going to be a hundred totally, you know, hundred percent, totally present with you. And because of that, you gain some confidence, you, you feel good about what you're doing. And now because of that, you realize, you know what I've been, whether settling in my marriage or I chose someone who is very familiar to my mom because it was so familiar. So now look at the spiral. It's completely 
it's completely changed direction. So now here you are out of that marriage. What did that lead to? Getting to know who I was and what I wanted. Um, I never really knew who I was, what I wanted, what I cared about, what made me happy. And I think that, you know, pushed me in the direction of, okay, well, you know, you are out of a toxic relationship. You have boundaries now with your mother in place. What do you want? And that was as terrifying as ever to try to sit there and go, oh my goodness, what do I want? I don't know what I want. That's when I think I started to say, okay, I need to start looking within, do some self-discovery work. What gets me excited? What makes me happy? What brings me joy? Because until that point, everyone's else, everyone else's needs were the priority over my own and knowing what I, what, who I even was and what made me happy was absent. Isn't that amazing how it's so true. It's like you finally have the, the bandwidth for that journey of self-discovery. And, and it seems so basic. Like, what do I need? What do I like? What, what do I not like? But when it's all about everybody else all the time, it's a complete and total unknown. And it can be terrifying because it's like, what I have no idea what I'm going to, what I'm going to discover, what I'm going to find. What were some things that you did find? Yeah. So, I mean, I did a lot of work and I got involved. I had, I had a very dear friend of mine, Amory, say to me, um, actually right when my mother had passed away, it was right around the time my mother had passed away. She said, you know, you should go do this program called the Landmark Forum. Mm-hmm. So I went and I did the Landmark Forum and that just kind of I did the entire curriculum. And so that really got me present to the stories I'd been telling myself from my childhood, but then also the limiting beliefs and the limiting potential that I had. Like, you don't realize how these, in, how these experiences from your youth and your relationship with your mother alter what you believe you can and cannot do in your life. Mm-hmm. That was the most eye-opening from the Landmark Forum was, you can't run, Michelle. You could never run... You can never even run the track in high school. You can't run. Well, in that program, I just declared I was going to run a half marathon, and I did. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. make the choice, like get rid of the limiting beliefs. So I did that. You know, and, and I'm just going to stop you there. These beliefs are so deeply ingrained, and there are a handful of people that they fed us these beliefs these ideas, these beliefs, and then we buy into them and then think about it. We have something like 60 to 80,000 thoughts a day. The majority of them are negative. So now if you have even take a low number, let's say, you know, 30,000 of I'm not worthy. I'm not deserving. I can't do something. Well, your mind always wants to prove you're right. So now he, all it is, is a repetition of more examples to confirm that limiting belief. Yeah. Until you identify it. And it sounds like that's exactly what you did. And a huge word here I want everybody to hear is willingness because it is so, we think it's easier. We're like, nope, I'm just not going there because I don't know what I'm going to find. But it's only in that willingness to do the work that you get the benefit of these discoveries. And then from that, create a life that, you know, that is so different. So Awesome. So you did that. You did landmark that just blew your mind up <laughs> with yeah. all the, all the old beliefs. And what were some of the new beliefs? What were some things that you could grab, grab hold and grab onto? And what did it lead to? Well, I think, you know, the, the next, the next thing that was really powerful for me was getting connected to, um, what I missed in my childhood and wanting to make a contribution to other children because of what I missed. So I did the, the self-expression and leadership program 
And in there, they ask you, if you could make a difference in the world, what would it be? And mine was, I would want every child to know that they were perfect, whole, and complete just as they are, and that their potential is limitless. So if you think about it, that was something my mother never told me, mm-hmm. that I wanted to give to other children. So they believed that they could, if they weren't getting it at home, that they could do whatever. So I created a program for children called Perfect Just the Way You Are. And it's designed to bring children um, information around how to nourish their body, how to nourish their mind and leadership. And I launched it and I've been running it with Johnson & Johnson um, since, uh, gosh, uh, 2013 maybe. Wow. Uh, So about, you know, how many years already? So, so I'm going to stop you again. So here's an example about, and I talk about this a lot, how your biggest crisis reveals your greatest gift. Like, look, it was because of my betrayal that I dove into that PhD program, studied betrayal, came up with these discoveries, opened the PBT Institute and all the programs and certifications and podcasts and all this kind of stuff. And, and yes, it was this, it's the kind of thing that absolutely takes you down, breaks your spirit, breaks your heart, breaks your, you know, everything, what you know to be real and true. But when you, when you're hard hit with something, I look at it like you, you know, you don't even have an option. You were, you were given this, but if you don't do something good with it, it's like you're giving it to yourself again and again and again. So here's your example of you didn't receive what you believed you should have as a child and it impacted you hard. But because of it, look at the gift you're giving to all these kids who are now so, um, really so lucky to have a program like this that's been created based on what you've experienced. Yeah. It's really cool. It's really cool. And every time I get, I, I'm in the program running it, I get present to the fact that these, some of these kids may never hear what I never heard. And if they're hearing it now for the first time, the difference that could make for them. Um, so out of pain and, or out of your mess comes your message, right? Mm-hmm. And if that was my mm-hmm. experience and it's just really cool. And the, and here, you know, here's the, the meaning and the contribution and, you know, and, and some of you may have heard me talk about post-traumatic growth, where that's sort of the upside of trauma, whatever the trauma is, how it leaves you, leaves you with a new perspective, awareness, insight that you didn't have beforehand. And, and betrayal involves healing from that crisis in addition to rebuilding the self, all those areas that were demolished because of the betrayal, trust, um, confidence, sense of rejection, abandonment, all of that. And, and in that place, when you do something powerful with it, it's post-betrayal uh, transformation. But it's in these places of healing is where you've ta- you have, just like you said, you've taken your mess and made it a message. You've taken your biggest crisis, turned it into your greatest gift. So what do you want to make sure everyone knows who they're just struggling with their crisis and there's like, well, that's really nice for you and all, but I'm just struggling and there's just not one thing powerfully or positive anything I could do with this? What do you, what do you say to them? I'm going to revert back to what you said, and that's willingness because no matter what has happened, I say this all the time, like, yes, I wrote my book and, and, you know, it's, it's clearly, you know, a story of perseverance and triumph. Um, but it would be a very different book had I not had the willingness to go down that, self-exploration, healing road and really open up and look at what happened to me, how it altered how I thought about my life. 
all of that had to have happened for me to reach a place of forgiveness and compassion for my mother to then sit down and write a book where I could make a difference for other people and be a force for change in the mental health space to remove stigma. Right. So now I'm, now I'm taking my mother's mental illness and now I'm transforming it into, I'm going to use this. So I cause a conversation that diminishes the stigma that prevents so many people from getting care. But it would never have happened if I didn't say, I need to go to a therapist. I need to talk to someone. I need to, I need to look within. I need to be courageous enough to take the first step and see where it goes and not look away and pretend it doesn't exist because I believe me, it exists and it's inhibiting you. Absolutely. It's so powerful what you're saying. I mean, that's exactly what my TEDx was about. It was about how we we do things to numb, avoid, distract. You know, we'll we'll do anything so we don't have to look at something and feel it and face it. But I say it time and time again, there is no other way to heal yeah. than diving in there, slaying those dragons, doing doing the work. That's not saying that it's easy. Transformation isn't easy, but that's why it's transformation. Because it's like, you know, here's that example of the butterfly. The caterpillar doesn't just stick on a pair of wings. You know, it makes a decision to be willing to die to the life it's known. You know, willing to be deconstructed, emulsified, unrecognizable from anything it was. Only when it's willing to go through that does it get to emerge as the butterfly. And it sounds like that's that's what you did. You were willing to do the work, willing to dive in, get it's messy, sticky, ugly sometimes. But because of that, look at the gift you're giving to so many people. Oh, that's so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. I so like Michelle, yeah. Go ahead. So how do we learn more about you? Where do we go? Yeah. So my website is www.breakingintomylife.com. You can learn about the book. You could get a free excerpt. You can read a chapter, see if it's something that you're interested in. Um, my book is available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. I, I'm just a very passionate advocate about causing conversations and doing public speaking at different schools and local groups. Um, but I'm so, I'm, I'm happy to talk about perseverance and triumph as well, because honestly, I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't overcome some of, some of the challenges from my youth. So, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, really, I just want to thank you so much because you, um, you did a few things. You, you brought light to um, just the the area of mental illness, which needs much more attention. And let's get rid of the stigma. Let's get the help that we need. Uh, and you're another example of someone who took a very painful experience and did something really good with it. And that's these these are the sheroes, everybody, right here. It's we have every reason to be completely jammed up and complain and and be so upset by the hand we were dealt. Mm-hmm. But then again, you could do something so positive and powerful with it. So I want to thank you for your contribution and uh, thank you for being here with us today. Uh, You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's so easy and all too common to have our childhood traumas create lifelong pain, but I hope you see how possible it is, as Michelle said, to turn your mess into your message, and that's exactly what she's done. Stay in touch with Michelle by going to breakingintomylife.com, and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at pbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. It can really serve us to look under the hood and learn what subconscious thoughts are constantly forming because they're behind the way we 
feel, the, the decisions we make, and the life we have. You can't change what you're not aware of, but by becoming aware of how early programming is impacting you now, that's the first step to doing anything about it. And once you realize that you may have some negative beliefs like, I don't matter, I'm not important, etc., you can then take them on, change them, and watch your life change as a result. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, but it's crucial if you want to change what's not working. And all this negative programming takes a toll on your body and mind, which can be showing itself in the form of post-betrayal syndrome. So take the quiz to see to what degree you may be struggling at pbtinstitute.com forward slash quiz. And let us support you. Go to Facebook and join our group, Women Hacking Betrayal, where we give information, tools, and support to help you move forward and heal once and for all. Can't wait to be with you next time. And here's to your breakthrough.